reforms were taking place, when the law had been rediscovered in the temple and read to the people, even in that time, there were many who were still turning away from the Lord, still choosing to go their own independent way. So what we're going to see in Zephaniah is a dire warning concerning the consequences of sin. For several hundred years, the southern kingdom had turned away from the Lord. And where they would get a good king occasionally, unfortunately, not everyone was on board with serving and following the Lord. And as a result, God's discipline was going to come on this people. So that's where we pick up the story with Zephaniah. Now, when we come to the first chapter, what we find is there's going to be a reckoning that's going to come in the day of the Lord. And uh, I am getting misfires for some reason, guys, with the... uh, There we go. (laughs) There's going to be a reckoning that's going to come on the day of the Lord. And what we're going to see are, are, are words that are very strong in their language when it comes to what's going on with Jerusalem and with Judah because of their sin. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. Imagine how you might feel if this were the message that you heard from a prophet about America, about your own country. Listen to what it says. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, would that get your attention? You better believe it. These are strong words. They're frightening words. This talk about sweeping things away, wiping it out, bringing it to a place of complete and utter destruction, these are warnings that God is giving through the prophet Zephaniah to the people of Judah because of their sinful behavior. He is warning them that their sin is bringing consequence. And the language of this couldn't be more stark It couldn't command more attention because of the way that it's framed. But let's look at this text carefully. In prophecy, there is poetic language, figurative language, and literal language. Now, when Zephaniah is saying that God is going to move across the face of the earth and wipe out all humanity, in this text, is he referring to God doing that in Zephaniah's time or in any time, or is this poetic language? Let me explain what I mean by poetic language. Poetic language takes literary devices to grab attention, and we have to look at the spirit of the language, and we have to also look at the way the people would have received what Zephaniah is saying. The people in Zephaniah's day did not have global knowledge. They couldn't look at globes and maps and satellite pictures from space. They looked at what was their world. And what Zephaniah is saying in this text is, your world is about to come apart, Jerusalem and Judah. You're about to see 
the Babylonians come into your land and they're about to wipe and sweep away everything that you know and everything that you hold dear. That was the message that Zephaniah was sharing. It's very much like a warning that Habakkuk gave. Habakkuk said this in Habakkuk 1.6, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who, same language, sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. Now, again, this is poetic language. We know that the Babylonians didn't take over the whole globe. When we hear earth, we think in terms of the globe, right? But in their day, it was their world, all that they knew, all that they could perceive, all that they had heard of. This is what God was going to do because of their terrible, terrible sin. In fact, what we find in this text as we go on, look at the last part of the third verse, and it says this, the wicked will have only heaps of rubble. Now, again, very strong language directed toward those who thought that they were invincible, though they perpetrated evil on a consistent basis. The warning that we find in Scripture is this. Your sin has consequence. The things that you do contrary to what God calls you to do will bring consequence, dire consequences. Very often when we are engaged in doing things that we know in our heart is wrong, we look at it and we say, well, nothing has happened by me doing this in the past, so I don't have to worry about anything happening because I'm doing this in the future. We mistake God's long-suffering, God's patience, with God not caring. What Zephaniah was writing to remind his readers about, and people as we read the Word of God through the many centuries that follow, is that God takes sin seriously. We should too. It's a warning. It's something to grab our attention. It's something to remind us that sin is not okay with God, and it shouldn't be okay with us. Now, when we continue in this text, we find that Zephaniah talks about the, or the rejection of God. And he begins to share with the people how their consistent rejection of God would bring terrible times. And it describes this rejection that they're going to face discipline for. In verses 4 through 9 of the first chapter, we're going to catch some glimpses of some of the sins that characterized Judah and Jerusalem. So let's look at these. When we come to the fourth verse, it says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Now, again, this is poetic language. And basically what it means in stretching out the hand, it means I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to exercise my power over you. And it says that this is going against Judah and against Jerusalem. And this is what God warns. I will cut off from every place, every remnant of Baal. Now, who is Baal? What's so bad about Baal? When we look historically at who this idol, Baal, was, there were terrible teachings that went along with the worship of this God. The teachings involved human sacrifice. 
They involved terrible immorality. But even more than that, it was a substitute of the created for the creator. As man turned to Baal, they turned away from God. As they embraced Baal, they forgot every moral standard that God had put into place. It was really supplanting the right position of worship that God should hold and replacing it with something else, something that was popular to the people around them, something that made sense to their neighbors and friends, but something that was contrary to everything that God teaches and everything that God is. So God allowed them to go down that path for centuries But Zephaniah is warning them, this will not stand. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, another worship was mentioned. And that was those who bowed down on their roofs to worship the starry host and who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. Now, again, in our Day and age, we don't think that much about worshiping the starry hosts unless you're into something like astrology or into something uh, that, that, that would call you to recognize powers of the stars, the sun, and the moon. And by the way, there are people that do worship that, just maybe not in our culture. But what had happened in Israel is this. There were those, again, who were supplanting the creator with the created. And as a result, they were turning away from God. They forgot all about God. They became wrapped up in teachings that had to do with what others in their day and age worshipped. They forgot God, turning away from him. Perhaps the most detestable idol in the Middle East was Moloch. And Moloch is mentioned here in this text, and What I find alarming is this, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. There was something called synergism going on. And what that means is they were borrowing things from a worship of a detestable God named Moloch who required child sacrifice. Now, we rejoice in our babies, don't we? I love seeing moms carry that little baby into church, so proud, so thankful. Imagine a mother taking that little bundle of beauty and love and going before an idol that had a furnace built into the middle of that idol and throwing that baby in sacrifice to that God, Moloch. Unbelievable. What evil. What a detestable evil that was. And yet, what were the followers of Jehovah doing in this day? They were worshiping God and they were worshiping Moloch. And talk about two antithetical viewpoints. That's what they were. The followers of God going for such an evil evil worship system is unbelievable, and that's why the fury of God had reached the degree that it had. Imagine God, who was aware of everything, 
in every moment, watching parent after parent after parent sacrificing their child to the god Moloch. You would look and you would say, have nothing to do with this wicked belief system. As a matter of fact, God had punished the people who were in Jerusalem before the Hebrews came into the land and possessed the land for worship of that very God. So how could they turn from Jehovah to worship something like that? And yet, that's what they were doing. It still had a huge following. In fact, right outside the gates of Jerusalem, Hinnom was a small little gully where fires burned to Moloch and babies were offered just a few feet away from the temple. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But this is what was going on. Really, to sum it up, look at the ninth verse. It says, On that day I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Now, this stepping on the threshold is a phrase that doesn't make much sense to us. But for the Philistines, when they would go in to worship their gods, they would step over the threshold. They did that out of superstition and deference to their gods. And yes, even within Jerusalem, there were those who had adopted that tradition, that thought process in worshiping the gods of the Philistines. So all of this was going on. It was detestable. And God was saying to the children of Israel, enough. I have let you go through this, through king after king, through generation after generation, and we're done. This cannot continue. Now, when it comes to judgment and when it comes to people suffering because an invading horde is coming into a country... Very often, the wealthy don't have to worry much. They look and they say, we have a golden parachute. We'll be okay. Not the case. The rich are going to suffer right alongside the poor when God brings this judgment on the people. Look at verses 10 through 13 of Zephaniah 1. And it says this, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, Wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade in silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing good or evil. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. So overcoming would the Babylonians coming into Jerusalem be that all of this is wiped out. Even the rich will suffer. You know when you've fallen on difficult times? When the rich suffer, they put things into place thinking, we'll overcome. Here's our safety. Here's our security. But when we don't have security in the Lord, 
We don't have security at all. Material things can go bye-bye, right? All of those safety nets can be cut from the bottom and will crash right through. This is what was happening with Jerusalem. This was the warning. And while generation after generation after generation had heard prophets come and say these very things in way of warning, the people had fallen into a complacency. They had come to the place to where they said, yeah, someday that all that bad stuff's going to happen, but it uh, doesn't affect me. I'll just keep on keeping on doing what I want to do. Isn't there a tendency in man to put off getting right with God? Someday I'll get right with God. Someday I'll do what I need to do to really consider God in my life. Right now, that's not a part of my life. I'm not concerned about it. I want to just live the way I choose to. Well, there was a warning that God gives in verses 14 through 18 to the children of Israel. And look at what this warning is, starting in the 18th verse, or right in the 18th verse. It's really summed together. It says this, Neither silver nor gold will be able to save them on the day of God's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end to all who live in the earth. In other words, their world was going to come crashing in. And why? Because God was going to bring the day of the Lord. Look back at the 14th verse. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That will be a day of wrath, a day of distress, a day of anguish. What we find the prophet Zephaniah saying to all of these people who had been so complacent, who thought that their silver or their gold would deliver them, all of those people are com coming to a, a place where the reality of what God has been warning them about because he cares about them, where it will really come to be. And it's coming quickly. The day of the Lord is a term that appears 19 times in just three chapters in the book of Zephaniah. It's a theme that God wanted to drive home to his people. And day of the Lord, you know what that means? Day of the Lord means a day where God is going to judge sin in the context of Zephaniah. It's a warning about a time when all that people have been doing, apart from God and ignoring God, where all of that is recompensed, where it's payday for the evil that they've done. Folks, we should never be deluded into thinking that we get away with wrongdoing. We should never think that God kind of looks at the evil that we do and wink, wink, nod, nod, doesn't really care about what happens. While the people of Judah were enjoying prosperity under Josiah, the erosion of the sin and their refusal to turn to God was eating away at them like a cancer destroying the nation. And so Zephaniah's warning is, 
God is about to bring to pass judgment because of what you've done. These are words that cause us great pause. When we look at the description that we find through that first chapter, we see terms that leap off the page at us, distress and anguish and gloom and blackness and blood, and it's inescapable. These were not idle words of warning. The Babylonians were coming to the gates, and they were going to pay for the sin that they had committed. But right in the midst of all of the warning, what do we find? We find that the Word of God calls us to repentance, and He will bring shelter to those who follow Him. Look at what we find in the second chapter. In the second chapter, it says, Repent before the day of the Lord comes. Even in all of this sin, all of this wickedness, you know what God does? He offers the people a way out. Look at the first verse. He says, gather together, gather together, O sinful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on us like chaff. The call to the people of God was this. Look, there's still time to avert the punishment that's coming upon us because of our sin. There's still time. God wants us to be people who respond to his call to repentance. Listen, God isn't in heaven saying, oh, man, I can't wait to just lower the boom on these people. God looks with compassion and care and says, your sin brings consequence. And as you continue to sin, the bowl of my wrath is filling up with your offenses. But listen, all you have to do is turn from what you're doing. Turn to me and you'll find forgiveness and a relationship with me. God was offering this when he's telling the people, to gather together. But look at the middle of that second verse. There was only a limited window of opportunity for these people. It says, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. There was going to come a time where the patience and the long-suffering of God would end. Isn't it human nature when we're doing wrong, when we're embracing the things that we know are wrong in our life to say, someday, I'll straighten it out. Not today, because I'm having too much fun. But someday, I'll do that. And we think that we have endless opportunity to set things right. The warning of Scripture is we have no guarantee in that the warning of Scripture is, look, before you realize it, God is going to bring all of the consequences that he has promised into your life, and the opportunity to repent will be gone. This is very much the same idea that Peter gives us in the New Testament. You see, there are scoffers 
that come along and say, I've heard about the judgment of God from the time I was little all my life. I've never seen anything come of it, so it's just not true. Peter writes this. He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. God is uninvolved in human affairs. This is what they say, but they're deluded. Because Peter goes on to say this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. God wants to see people repent and when people seemingly get away with murder, it is the patience and the love of God giving them the opportunity to repent. Here, the Word of God is calling us to understand that God's patience should not be confused with God's stamp of approval, that God's patience does not mean that he is uninvolved. So what were the people to do when they sought repentance? Look carefully at the third verse. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Here's an invitation to the people to change, to begin seeking the Lord rather than seeking the idols that they had replaced him with, to begin seeking the Lord instead of seeking their own comfort and their own desires, to seek the Lord with a passion and a desire to know and follow him. This is what God calls people of all days to, to seek him. Listen, there are plenty of things out there that can replace God. Plenty of carrots that are dangling right in front of us. Hey, come on, grab it, take it, it's yours. But we don't see the booby trap attached to the carrot. We don't see the terrible things that come as a result of us embracing these things. And so God is saying, don't seek after those things that will entrap you. Seek after me. It's the heart of a loving God calling the sinner to turn to him. But you know, there are consequences when we do not. In the book of Micah, Micah summed up what God wants to see in us. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And this is what Zephaniah is reaffirming when he says, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. It's a call to God's people to turn to him. Well, you know, if this were the end of Zephaniah, it would be a depressing book. The latter part of the second chapter and the first part of the third chapter talk about the many nations that are going to fall under the judgment of God. 
And it talks about terrible times that lie ahead and more judgment and more difficulty that will be visited upon the people. But then when we come to the ninth verse, we see something that shifts. And that's what I'd like to close the sermon with. We, as the people of God, are considered a remnant. And what God was saying to the people that Zephaniah was writing to is there will be a righteous remnant that God will protect and not just within Jerusalem in that day, but understand this. When the Scripture talks about judgment, often the pictures of judgment that we find in these minor prophets that pertain to Jerusalem and Judah are foreshadowing of a worldwide judgment that is coming upon planet Earth for their sin. Listen, folks, when we look at the world around us, we can see an absolute mess that the entire world is in. Not just pockets like we've seen throughout history, but globally, the world is a mess. God is going to visit judgment upon the world, and we know this because the Scripture has told us so. This will not stand it will not go on forever and ever and ever. God is going to set things right. And he promises us that very thing in his word. But even as the world continues to decline and go to a worse and worse place, God keeps a faithful remnant. There are those that still serve and seek and follow the Lord. This was true in Jerusalem and Judah, and it's true worldwide. The big decision that we have to make is this. Do I attach myself to the rejectors or to the remnant? And our behavior will determine which group we've attached ourselves to. I can say I'm a part of the faithful remnant of God, but if I'm behaving like the rejectors all around me, then I'm not, pure and simple. The remnant has something eternal, something lasting to look forward to. The rejectors have a crashing close to their rejection of God that's going to be visited upon them. So what about this faithful remnant? What does God promise? Look at verses 9 through 13, and you'll see that there will be revival that will take place. We're just going to read through this very quickly and look at what it says. The Scripture says, I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring offerings. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord." You know what constitutes the remnant? Those who trust in the name of the Lord. 
Not the spiritually proud who walk around and do what they want to do but say, I am super follower. They're not going to be people that God will consider the remnants. Those who humbly and with holy lives seek God will. But understand this. It is God who does this work of revival among the people. As God speaks to their hearts, they respond. They repent. They do what God calls them to. Listen, you want to be a part of that group. You want to be a part of the remnant. You want to be one who follows God. Look at what else we find in this text. In verses 14 through 17, we find that people will rejoice in the presence of the Lord. I love the way this is framed in the 14th verse. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. Now look at this. He is mighty to save. He will take delight in you and will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the intimacy of that relationship with the Lord? Two people rejoice in this. In verse 14, it's the remnant. We rejoice in the Lord. Listen, folks. When we seek to find joy in things apart from God, they play out, and there are terrible consequences that come as a result of them that we just can't see. We're too short-sighted, but they're there, believe me. The lie says there's no consequence here. It's only fun. It's only good times. It's only good things. Turn to it. Listen, we need to find our joy in the Lord. And when we find our delight in the Lord, look at the reciprocal that we find. The Lord delights in us. We know what it is to experience his tremendous love. We rejoice, and God sings in joy over us. Man, have you ever thought about that? that God can rejoice in me? That's the promise for the faithful remnant. That's what God will one day do for Israel. Final thought. There will be a regathering and a restoration of God's people. When we look through the minor prophets, we see prophecy after prophecy of doom and destruction that will come on Israel, the very people of God. If you were just to look at these prophecies, you would think, oh man, they're not going to survive. But you know what? God had made a promise to Abraham that they would be a people, that they would have a land. In fact, this is a picture, a map of the promised land. When we look at this map, we see that most of the Middle East was promised to Abraham. It hasn't been experienced yet, but it is coming and what we find in the closing verses of Zephaniah 
is the promise that God will preserve and protect his people. These promises will be fulfilled. Listen to what Zephaniah says. The sorrows for appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lamb. I will gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. This is home. In the future for Israel, this will be where the people of Israel are regathered and where the promises of God are are fully realized. We've yet to see this several thousand years after this prophecy was made, but that doesn't mean that it isn't fulfilled. God is going to fulfill it. And that's the promise. We can look at the short term and say, hey, all of the pressure from the surrounding communities to worship like they worship, live like they live, that's pressing in on us, and it's awfully easy to respond and become like the world around us. But that's short-term thinking. What God calls us to is the long-term thinking of looking ahead to what he promises, because it will surely be delivered. While we may suffer and struggle now for looking to that long-term solution, it's well worth it. God is promising to let his people experience his deliverance. The scripture ends in verse 20 with this. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Israel sought these things because Israel thought that they could find the shortcut to getting what they wanted, but it wasn't there. They were deluded. They were foolish. God promised and delivered on these things. I want you to leave this morning with this thought. Am I a short-term or long-term thinker? Am I looking to the things of the world around me? Or am I looking to the things of God? Zephaniah calls us to live for the things of God. Would you stand with me right now? We're going to dismiss in a word of prayer. And I just want you to leave with that thought. Let's pray. Dear God.